Hi, we should be uh, ready here just a second. And we're going to give, once we go live, we're going to give folks just a couple of minutes because they're probably uh, closing down off of Jeff's session and uh, hopefully grabbing a drink. Let's see. All right. Hey, we're live and there's grand total of one person watching us so far. So we'll give folks another yeah. minute too. All right. Well, hello everybody, everyone who's uh, coming in. We're starting to see the numbers climb here. So we're gonna, we're gonna get started in just a second. So we wanna give folks an opportunity to, to log on before we start before, uh, before we start rolling here with Lindsay. Um, so we, here we are, we are like uh, halfway through, almost halfway through the third day. So we are, we are in the home stretch here for the three-day bender. Uh, the, la the first two sessions I thought were really good. Um, looking forward to, to Lindsay's here. And then we've got, I know um, I'm blanking on the three o'clock for today. Um, that's the uh, stories from the road. That's Jeff's. Yeah, Jeff's going to be on at three o'clock. And then uh, I'm hosting Dorian Moore at four. And Dorian is uh, vice president of Archive DS in Detroit. And uh, he's talking about how to develop developers and uh, more specifically how we can engage minority developers uh, to do more within their communities and, and to try to grow the minority development community in general. So, all right, well, we're getting pretty close. We've got uh, we got a couple dozen folks in the room, so we're gonna go ahead and get started. I am joined this afternoon by Ms. Lindsay Dotson. Hi, Lindsay. Hello, Joe. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I've known Lindsay for a number of years. She's been the, the DDA director and Main Street director up in uh, Charlevoix, Michigan, which is a lovely town in, in the northwest lower part of, of Michigan. Um, it's a whole thing here between what's northern Michigan and what's the UP. It's a whole thing. Don't get us started. And I, I saw the last session where uh, where Jeff was talking, was trying to give us directions in Michigan or excuse me, directions in Wisconsin by using his hand. And that's just blasphemy here. We don't do that. Um, we have the real state with the uh, uh, with the mitten, so we'll uh, I'll have Lindsay explain all that. So, but Lindsay's been uh, the the DDA director, Main Street director since what 2016, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, in Charlevoix, and is doing an incredible job there, and she's going to talk to us about co-working spaces, which are, you know, typically up until the last few years, we've really seen those only in major urban areas, and now we're seeing them pop up all over. And so, Lindsay, why don't you go ahead and just take it away? All right, thank you. I'll get my presentation going here. And uh, I've encouraged Joe to interrupt at any time. Uh, it's a little bit more interesting with questions as they come in. So, um, so yeah, thanks for joining. And I'm gonna start with a brief introduction to Charleroi, uh, just so everyone kind of has an idea of the, the climate that I'm working within. Um, our our year-round population is less than 2,500 people, um, and our median household income is lower than the median for the state of Michigan. Um, yet our median age is much higher because of the fact that we are predominantly a community that um, depends on seasonal tourism, and therefore a lot of people choose to retire here. And so we have an aging population, uh, to put it best. We also have an abundance of summer homes and cottages um, and a slew of vacation rentals. And so all of the numbers that you see above are not represented uh, in the rest of the population that spends time here because of the fact that their primary residences are elsewhere. So um, 
that story is really just telling the story of our year-round population um, and also kind of uh, sets the contrast of what we have going on with our summer population being extremely wealthy and our year-round population being considered low to moderate income. So there's a dichotomy that makes uh, life interesting here, uh, but it is a beautiful town and that's why everyone uh, chooses to come, whether it's uh, just for a vacation or for that extended stay in the summertime. Um, as you can see uh, on the map, we're surrounded by water. Um, Lake Michigan is to our northwest and then we have a little uh, channel that goes through our downtown into Round Lake where our city marina is located and then into the third largest inland lake, uh, Lake Charlevoix. So it's really a boater's paradise here and that's essentially the main draw. So remote work in Charlevoix existed before we started the conversation about a co-working space and the conversation was actually born from the library. Our public library was considering opening a co-working space in an underutilized section of the building because in the summertime, especially, they were so inundated with people who were visiting from out of town or didn't have you know, adequate connection and their home uh, and, and they had to get work done, but the library wasn't the best setting for that, especially if you had meetings and things like that to conduct. And so, um, while the library was still working on a plan for this, we decided to collaborate with them and also uh, members of the community and we formed basically a group of remote workers um, to start brainstorming the feasibility of this space and at first at the library. Um, but it was really, I think it was the very first meeting that we figured out that the library was just not gonna work at all. And the main reason why was because um, <clears throat> privacy needs uh, were tough to address in uh, an open uh, kind of format setting like this. And also um, the library opens at 10 and many people, uh, enjoy, that's not the right word, prefer to start their work days before 10 a.m. and uh, they did not feel comfortable giving members access to the building outside of operational hours. So then we quickly turn that conversation into, okay, well, since that's not going to work, let's talk about co-working as a business and uh, trying to, you know, figure out if there's enough demand and, and really considering the feasibility of that so that we could recruit a private entity to open up a co-working space. So that's Lindsay, how we started. Well, hold on, before, before you move on to the next slide, first of all, I think a lot of folks, you know, that's the, the first, you know, they'll say that the libraries are the original co-working space, like, you know, originally because of the Wi-Fi is there. And you guys actually, frankly, have an incredible library. It's a beautiful, that's literally a picture of it right there. Uh, that's not enhanced, it is a gorgeous facility. And I think a lot of communities, that's their first default is to is to say, all right, how about the libraries? And, you know, in a lot of cases, that may be the best the best issue or the best thing that they have to deal with. But you guys clearly are going down a different path. But I wanted to point out just one, how incredible this library is and the important roles that libraries already play in our communities. But um, just yeah. really want to brag on your library for a second. But go ahead. Oh, OK, thanks. Like it's kind of funny because it's one of those like if if, if I I'm I'm the weird Main Street director who if I'm walking down the sidewalk and I see someone like that seems lost and they're like what should we do like what kind of things should we see um, rarely do you come into a town where someone tells you go look at the library just go visit the library 
um, because it's just, it's breathtaking. It is an astonishing uh, project. That is a result of DDA funding, which is exciting to brag about too, so. <laughs> All right, um, so while we had this group, I mean, and the way we recruited these people were, were mostly word of mouth, um, Facebook, of course, we put something in the paper because that's still very relevant here, especially, especially with our older uh, generations that populate the area. Um, and we just started getting random people showing up to these monthly meetings that either worked from home with their own home-based home business or worked remotely for a company elsewhere, either in the state or in the country. And so, um, as I mentioned, we were talking about this and trying to figure out um, how we could best make the case for recruiting this type of business to open in our downtown. Um, and as we started these conversations, our local leadership, including my board of directors, really didn't even know what co-working was. And so you can imagine my uphill battle, um, just kind of getting them used to the idea of co-working and how it can be useful for our, our town. Um, and so the best way to kind of convince them or flip their opinion was uh, I basically started bringing some of the remote workers to committee and board meetings to kind of tell their story and share why they were in Charlevoix, who they worked for, um, how it gave them extra spending power. Because for example, if you work for a company based in LA and you live in Northern Michigan, uh, cost of living is extremely different and you're most likely gonna be getting paid more to work for that LA based company, right? So, um, you know, just kind of bragging on the spending power that that enables. And of course, uh, talk about the, the lifestyle that it, um, and the quality of life that it brings to the family and all that fun stuff. And so during this time, I at least convinced my board to hire an AmeriCorps VISTA member to help uh, conduct a feasibility study in conjunction with the National Main Street Center who had been brought on board uh, to help us through this process. And uh, I love Matt Wagner. He was so helpful through this. Um, but then, you know, as we're brainstorming and dreaming of, of co-working and what this could look like for our downtown. I, I share this photo because when you think of co-working spaces, this is pretty much what, what comes to mind, right? This big open format, like everyone sharing space and collaborating and there's no like division walls and it's hip and cool and like diverse and all this fun stuff and so that and and I've experienced working in a co-working space before and other places and and so that's what I had in my mind all along um and and what I thought was right for our town so um we <laughs> It, things things are interesting. Like sometimes, you know, I'm I'm in the process of of writing a business plan um, as like a sample, uh, and to also like as a part of the feasibility study, just figure out if it can work dollars and cents wise. Um, and all the while, all of a sudden, um, the art of making it their idea, which I'm sure if you're a downtown manager in any capacity you have realized that that's kind of like your, your strongest tool in the trade. Um, all of a sudden, my board were, were giant cheerleaders behind this effort. And I don't know what happened. I really don't. Like all, it was just, all of a sudden it was their idea. And someone had a friend who had been office space available in the downtown. And 
on my board approved moving forward with opening a publicly operated co-working space. So um, it's it kind of, it, I was a little surprised by it. Um, and we definitely had to shift gears a little bit, uh, obviously, because we were um, in the mindset of recruiting a private investor to do this. And then all of a sudden we were those investors. And so um, it became a community project with our already established Rojo group uh, and community leaders. And my board's goal essentially was to break even uh, at the end of the day, acknowledging that the first year that might not be possible because of upfront expenses. So um, the building is pictured here uh, where the co-working space exists. And um, it looks great uh, from the outside, but the reality of the space is that it is underground and has no windows. And it was a stuffy office um, of a marketing company for a credit union. So like the opposite of what you think of when you think of co-working spaces, right? <laughs> well, and, and before, we, before we move off the slide, you know, the, your very first point I think is really powerful. And I, I can just hear the other downtown directors and main street managers you know, the make it their idea. I really think that's something that's completely undersold in a lot of cases. And when, when trying to make the case to leadership on things, it's, you know, helping to sell that, but for them to actually get that buy-in so it becomes their idea. And this sounds like this kind of had that on steroids. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny, it's interesting when, you know, you spend your time, you know, advising small businesses on the steps, uh, the necessary steps that are involved in doing any aspect of business. And most of the time, I mean, we know like, you know, there's so many success stories of, you know, the whole leap of faith type approach to opening a business. Um, but I, basically we were going to go against everything that we preach, right? By just doing it without figuring out everything <laughs> out front. So, um, but the opportunity was great because the space that we was fully furnished with office furniture um, and kind of a blank slate, but it was also a stuffy office. And so um, we opened the space in September of 2019. Um, think about the fact that that's, you know, six months-ish before the pandemic hit. Um, consider the fact that we are a rural area in Northern Michigan and high-speed internet is hard to come by. Um, for example, I live six miles out of town and I don't, I use a mobile hotspot. Like I don't have wired internet. Um, so we ended up uh, with the, the presence of the AmeriCorps VISTA member. We also had to uh, create a, a model that was also addressing um, community needs and poverty because that's one of the um, main drivers behind that program. And so because of that, we partnered up with some local professionals and the Small Business Development Center of Northwest Michigan to offer classes and workshops, um, not only for local businesses that already existed, but um, skill development classes and uh, you know, resume writing classes to try to uh, appeal to those who might say work in the service industry and um, want something else for themselves um, outside of that, but want to be able to stay in the area. So remote work is an opportunity to consider um, when it comes to keeping your, uh, your <laughs> minimal amount of people in, uh, in your community. And so there were a lot of um, fantastic uh, kind of fold-ins that came with the AmeriCorps VISTA membership. 
um, being a part of that first year. Uh, but things, um, things did change a little bit. So um, as I mentioned, you know, why are we, why does anyone care? Um, and in rural America, and you've seen the programs in states like Oklahoma and Vermont where they'll pay you like $10,000 cash to move to their state because they want more people there. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think, you know, obviously the main appeal of remote workers is the fact that they can live anywhere and they bring their job with them and their family. And so it's an opportunity for talent recruitment and population growth. Um, but you also have to have amenities that are needed by that workforce and uh, a welcoming culture is extremely important. And as I briefly mentioned, um, it's also an opportunity for current residents to consider remote work in order to stay in the area with gainful employment. So, <clears throat> so I think the main reason why the vault has been successful so far um, regardless of, and that's our co-working space, we called it the vault, um, because it's blow a bit and there's an actual vault there. So it wasn't a creative name by any means, but everyone liked it. So um, the, I think the main reason why it's been successful is that infrastructure and, and lack of access to high-speed internet, um, because it, it, it basically keeps us relevant um, and kind of, it, it ends up making us a resource that um, versus like a choice, if that makes sense. <laughs> Not to say that uh, we're torturing our members or anything, but I really do think that that has a lot to do with our success. So um, uh, as far as amenities are concerned, you know, we offer up the same type of amenities that many large, larger city co-working spaces offer. Um, we do have private offices. We allow our members to have 24 hour access to the building. Um, Nearby Airbnbs, oh boy, do we ever have some of those. Um, coffee, bike storage, pet friendly. At one point we had a few dogs there, um, everyone loved that. Of course, access to Wi-Fi, meeting space, all that fun stuff. And um, our rates have always been extremely affordable because of the, um, you know, we wanted it to be accessible to anyone who needs to use the space versus prohibitive. Um, and, and since it is a community project, uh, we, we've kept that in mind with our pricing. And so um, how COVID has changed the co-working space um, in its infancy, right? Um, Pre-pandemic, it was a place for home-based workers to connect with others and reduce social isolation. Um, of course, we were always encouraging networking and collaboration. There were a lot of shared spaces and amenities. We had parties all the time and in-person workshops and classes. We even had toys for kids in the common area. So, um, you know, someone who was working, their, their daughter would, would come with their wife for lunch kind of thing. And it was just, you know, just everyone kind of shared everything. And we even had um, daily drop-in rates because that's a very common feature of a co-working space. But um, our pivot uh, was shifting our, our membership model to um, private offices and or dedicated desks only. So we kind of eliminated that drop-in component so that we could control who was at which desk and make sure that it was sanitized in between um, to kind of make everyone feel safe. 
Um, most of our original members at, the, at this point when the pandemic started opted to stay home because they had that option and they didn't want to be around other people when there's a pandemic happening. So, um, so that was kind of a scary moment. And um, I actually had someone in leadership tell me when everything started, uh, when all the restrictions were coming into place, he was like, hey, good luck having or asking people to pay you guys to work remotely. Like now everyone has to do that. So like they were basically like, this is going to be the nail in the coffin for this project. <laughs> um, but we ended up seeing a change in our membership uh, to include a lot of our transient population. And when I say transient, I mean um, seasonal visitors or uh, tourists. Um, I will stop and let you comment or ask a question. <laughs> well, so yeah, so the first question then is, you know, you're seeing a lot of folks who are coming in. Um, well, certainly we heard about this downstate where folks were just saying, you know what, hey, if I'm having to work for remote anyways, I'm just gonna go up to my cabin and go do that. And I imagine you guys saw quite a bit of influx. And oh, yeah. I've got about six or seven questions. Folks have actually been peppering with questions pretty well. Um, and I'll, I'll meet, let me get to those in just one second. But, um, you know, this uh, the thought of having poor um, broadband outside of the city, that really kind of plays to your advantage here, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And there may come a time because there is a huge effort right now. I mean, my, my neighborhood is wired now. So like we will soon have high-speed internet and broadband. Um, there may come a time that the vault becomes irrelevant and or not needed. And that's just gonna, it's gonna be what happens and that's okay. <laughs> so everything needs to evolve, but it's gonna meet right exactly. now. Yes. So uh, a couple of other questions. So uh, one was uh, like, how are you access? How are you restricting access? You know, in that 24, you're allowing 24 seven, but obviously you just can't walk in off the street 24 hours a day. How are you monitoring that access? How are you guys doing that? Yeah, so we, um, there is a platform that has been created and um, helps manage hundreds of co-working spaces across the country. Um, and it's called Proximity Space. And essentially it's um, a way to monitor doors, memberships, payment, like everything that you need to do for a co-working space, there's the ability to do it within this platform and it's web-based. Um, but they also sell a lock that is programmable and accessible through a mobile app. Um, and that is how our members gain access to the space is by using their app that's linked to their membership. Um, so yeah, we can't, if you're not a member, you don't get in the door basically. <laughs> Especially now that the pandemic is here, we just keep that door locked at all times, so. so we've had we've had two questions asking about demand. What are you seeing a, a higher demand for? Even though you just talked about that kind of that pivot, are you seeing a demand for private office space? Are you looking for, you know, are you seeing private, you know, semi-private, you know, what, what's the demand like? What are folks looking for? Yeah, so in our case, and, and even for in the very beginning, um, we had more people asking for private space than not. Um, and I think it has to do with a couple of things. First of all, Many of our members have jobs that they're dealing with um, sensitive information, whether it's their clients that they work with or whatever, and they don't feel comfortable being in an area where, you know, someone might overhear a, a meeting uh, about a sensitive topic or 
um, look over sh their shoulder and see like someone's social security numbers or medical records. So, um, so that private space has been highly sought out from day one. Um, so we had to, you know, cause we, in the beginning, we actually had like the big giant work table in the middle of the room of like the common area with lamps down the middle and like people were supposedly going to sit all around it and, and have a kumbaya good time. Um, but no one wanted that. <laughs> Right. And so we quickly had to move the table um, and then set up like all these different stations that were kind of subdivided and semi-private um, to better, to basically improve comfort levels for our members. Um, and then we offer up uh, like phone booths, which are actually old booths that existed for when someone went to open their safety deposit box. Um, and those are available for those private meetings if someone doesn't have a private office and or our conference room can be reserved and people can just close the door in there. So, so for people, um, so, so, so hold on, I'm gonna stop a second. For people under 40, safety deposit boxes are, are these boxes <laughs> in the banks where you go put your stuff and you know, the really valuable stuff. And to me, I think it's one of those things you just don't see anymore in banks. And it's one of those things you almost have to stop and explain to people, like, what's a safety deposit box? What's a safety deposit room? Like, honestly, we don't, you know, I, I haven't seen one since I was a kid. Um, but this idea that, you know, that space was already there. You guys were able to, to kind of reprogram that space. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and then um, I have one follow-up question from uh, the queen of serial videos, Ray Gosling. And uh, she wants to know how you are, uh, how you're marketing young professionals. Oh man, good question. Um, I would say most, most of our young professionals that have come into the space have been recruited either via Facebook or um, we do have a presence on LinkedIn as well, but we like we have a very old fashioned way of getting the word out about things here in Charlevoix. Um, at the end of each each end of town, because we are one of those one stoplight kind of towns, um, there's like these, I don't even know what to call them, stanchions that um, hold banners about community events. And um, as you're coming or going from either way, you kind of drive by and or stop and have to look at all these banners and see what's going on. Um, we've had a banner up about the vault for the last year, and I swear to goodness, that has been like the most successful way to the get people to pay attention. Banner, I like that. Not, not social media marketing. You guys just. No. Do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you just never know. Every, every town is different, right? So. Yep. So yeah, you did, you know, you touched on the downstate population kind of saying, well, I'm stuck at home, might as well go somewhere that's a little bit more enjoyable. Um, and so we definitely benefited from that. We saw some of our members who, like we actually had people who were um, living on their boat in the marina. And of course that's not the best conducive like working environment. So um, they became members and eventually like bought a condo here. So that's great. Like you, good success stories all around. Um, and then we also introduced a student rate for high school and college students who had to do remote learning. Um, and we saw, you know, pretty good uptick of users um, that were under, um, I guess, 30 <laughs> and 25. Um, so yeah, and, and of course, you know, after the COVID, after COVID hit, 
we had to eliminate a lot of the communal activities um, and amenities, including shared like a coffee pot. Like, I don't know why, but everyone was worried about just touching other things, you know, I mean, I do know why, but so it, it kind of you know, really kind of eliminated that whole community feel of the space. And we actually converted our kitchen into another private office because demand was so high. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it definitely kind of changed the way we had to do everything. But, um, and as I mentioned before, like some of our membership, you know, we've got a good mix. Um, you know, there's an insurance company that just has their travel location out of our co-working space. We have several people who just pay us monthly to use a mailbox so they can have a physical address um, for their home-based business so they don't have to give that out on Google, for example. Um, we have a nonprofit hospice supply uh, group of people that work out of one of the private offices, home builders, HR consultants, uh, attorneys, physicians even. Um, because telehealth has become such a thing that even oh, wow. uh, doctors are traveling more. <laughs> um, and telehealth as, as being a, an occupant of a co-working space. That's incredible. Yeah, it's crazy because it was illegal in Michigan uh, before the, the, the pandemic. And that was one of the things that we were trying to advocate for just because one of our members had an interest in it. Um, but yeah, lots of people working for software companies and um just hospitals, you name it. Um, and but you you do notice there's kind of a uh, a theme of you know most of these people are going to be working with you know sensitive client information, and so that's one of the reasons why our private space is like gold. So um, in general, we have kind of you know COVID catapulted so many trends forward quicker than any of us were ready for, right? Um, and when we decided to open a co-working space and we had empty offices in the downtown, people started to say, well, that's interesting. Like you're working against what you guys are trying to do with, uh, you know, taking away from potential tenants of those permanent offices. Um, and so, you know, to kind of quiet that crowd, we had to at first uh, create a link uh, into those vacant office spaces. So if, if someone did come and say they want a private space, we would say, sorry, we don't have it, but you know, here are other options in town that you can consider. Um, and that did work out a couple of times, uh, but generally speaking, um, especially now, I think that people find the less permanent and more affordable option, uh, you know, more attractive than a traditional office because of the fact that we're not meeting with people, you know, clients in person as often. Um, if you think about a traditional office space, you're going to have to sign a lease for at least a year, if not two. Um, you have to pay for your own internet, your own furnishings, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the co-working environment makes it so that it's, you know, you're not committed past, you know, your monthly membership. Um, and you can come and go as you please, depending on what's going on in your life, which is flexibility that, makes everyone feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, of course, smaller towns offer a high, high quality of life. Um, and I do think that we, um, towns like ours have an advantage over suburban areas because I mean, where, where you go for vacation, why not spend most or all of your time here, right? <laughs> um, so travel patterns definitely changed. We kind of talked about that um, in longer stays for seasonal homeowners did happen. Um, 
And I think, yeah, I kind of touched on all this. I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. <laughs> but um, as far as moving forward trends and kind of uh, bringing about, or I guess bringing to surface problems that communities face, um, you know, we have a couple of things to thank the pandemic for, and it's really just kind of uh, lighting a fire under our butts uh, uh, oh, around a couple of topics, including affordable housing. Um, you know, rural America, especially in northern Michigan, our entire region has a terrible shortage of affordable housing because of the fact that we have a lot of these vacation rentals that have popped up. It's a market that you can't really control. Um, municipalities are having a hard time kind of figuring out, you know, how to control it, but also strike that balance because who doesn't want a tourist to come to your community and spend a bunch of money in a week. Um, but if you look at our town specifically, we've got about 40% of our housing stock that is considered vacant if you look at um, census data. And that's because those are second homes and or vacation rentals. So that's almost half of our housing stock is only occupied in the summertime. So what does that mean? Well, it means in October, when you wanna take your kid trick-or-treating, there's not a, a neighborhood that has enough lights on to even make it worth it. Um, so that's when it starts detracting from the community that we have and, and really kind of causing an issue. And so we've been really proactive the last couple of years in Charlevoix to create um, parameters around the number of vacation rentals that are available. Um, and we're getting really aggressive with downtown incentives to create more housing units in, um, you know, underutilized space. And before, when you, before the pandemic, underutilized space would have been, um, you know, a vacant second floor. But now underutilized space is vacant office building <laughs> units, right? Um, because we don't know if they're ever going to be in demand the way they were once upon a time. Um, so we're really, <clears throat> we're really kind of, you know, having to address the affordable housing issue because if we want young talent and people who have newfound freedom with remote work to be able to choose to stay here, we have to have a place for them to live. And um, also, you know, we're working in a very traditional community where talking about housing outside of a single family unit uh, is kind of like speaking a foreign language because uh, they don't understand that someone would actually want to just rent an apartment versus buy a house in a neighborhood. Um, and so adding a, a diverse mix of types of housing is, is definitely something that we're working toward. And it's all to just, you know, better appeal to that crowd that wants to come here for the uh, lifestyle that we offer. Um, so a quick review for the first year of the co-working space. Like I said, our goal was to break even. Um, our upfront expenses were about 20 grand to get off the ground. Um, mind you, we had no build out. We didn't have to buy furniture. Um, you know, we, there were a couple of big expenses in the form of our, you know, security system and things like that. Um, but, you know, our, our upfront costs were much lower than if you're starting with a, a space that's just kind of a blank slate. Um, and over, you know, I would say the last 15 months, we've, uh, we've actually netted uh, over $30,000 just from our memberships, and, and we have gotten some grants, but that's not factored into this. And so we have over 100 members at this point, 
um, at varying levels. And at any given time, we have about 20 people active. And so we're never completely full. Um, and, and that's been okay, especially because of the pandemic. <laughs> so our average monthly expenses in our space is about $1,400. That includes rent, um, internet, and like a lease for the copying the fax machine and all that fun stuff. And now we're actually working on transferring the ownership of our co-working space to the Chamber of Commerce. Um, our initial intention was to transfer it into a, a set of private hands. Um, but over the course of the last 15 months, people have actually enjoyed the fact that it's a community project and a community space. And the Chamber of Commerce, um, like many chambers across the United States right now, um, they're having to reevaluate their, their organization and how they function and where their revenue is coming from because so many events got canceled and, um, you know, things are, are just different in the chamber world. And so ours is kind of taking this on as an opportunity to expand their services to their membership and the community. And of course, they have more staff because um, I'm a staff of one. <laughs> so uh, their capacity is larger. Go ahead. That, that brings up a question somebody had asked earlier, which is, you know, how does that work day to day there? I mean, how is that you running that day to day? It, you know, is that, and then is this transfer, is this, I mean, it, it just between, you know, me, you, and the couple, you know, probably a thousand people who will see this, um, you know, is this something that you guys are willingly giving up or is this something that's like, eh, hey, the chamber really needs to do this? Um, willingly, but not because it hasn't been fruitful. Uh, the only reason why we want to not be solely responsible for it is because of my lack of capacity. Um, so yeah, I do, you know, on this slide, I, I talk about the fact that, you know, having an extra staff person um, had, was gold for us the first year, because you could, you would think that something like this could generally kind of run on its own. Um, but there's different levels of comfort with technology that people have. Um, just helping people use the app to get in the door, for example, um, tends to be a time sucker. Um, and cleaning and just like those day-to-day -day activities, they end up taking a lot more time than you think it might. Um, we didn't want to hire a cleaning company just because we're trying to keep our costs as low as possible. And so, but if you consider, you know, the types of things that you have to have in stock and plenty of it, like toilet paper and paper towel and, you know, just basic things like that, like you're running a business, you have expenses and um, you have to provide a certain experience for your members. And so, um, we, the VISTA member was that day-to-day -day presence 40 hours a week for the first year. And if it wasn't for that, I probably would have been that person and um, I probably would not have gotten any other things in my job done. So, um, and I didn't want to move my office into the space either because <laughs> it doesn't have windows. So, and that's, you know, that, that was in and of itself, I'm still shocked to this day that we've gotten as many members into the space as we have because it isn't that hip environment. It doesn't have natural light. Um, some of the photos you see, you know, we've, we've covered the walls in local art thanks to many artists that were able to just let us display their art. Um, 
and that's definitely added some color uh, to the space. And most of those scenes are natural. Um, and so it's almost like you have a big giant window. <laughs> um, but yeah, when thinking about co-working and whether it's right for your town, whether it's a public or private uh, uh, endeavor, you know, do make sure you know that you're writing a business plan. And I actually took advantage of SBDC counseling. They considered me a business client um, going through that process. And it was um, really eye-opening to just be a part of that versus just referring people to that service. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, when, when I, op when I thought of opening a co-working space, like I said, I, I, I pictured the communal aspect of things. Um, and we quickly had to realize that our, our audience and our members just weren't those people. They weren't the, the millennials that wanted to share everything with everyone. Um, and so just be flexible to your members and your community's needs, because it's not, it might not be what what we think co-working is supposed to be like. Um, ask your community for support. Uh, we were surprised, like I mentioned, we've got so much art hanging on the walls from world-renowned artists that were lucky that you know to call Charlevoix home. Um, a local roaster donates coffee, so we never have to buy that, which is awesome. Um, and we ended up getting some furniture donations for like common areas that didn't have furniture when we got the space. Um, weigh the pros and cons of a public versus private endeavor. I, it's funny because while we were in the process of launching into this, I went to a meeting where I ran into the creator of a private co-working space in Traverse City, which is a town very close to here. Um, and I was talking to him. I was like, oh, I feel like I have so much to learn from you because um, this space has been highly successful. Um, and I said, you know, would you mind talking with me just so I can kind of pick your brain on a couple of things? And he's like, you're opening a public co-working space in Charlevoix. I said, yeah. He's like, that's not going to work. Like, okay. <laughs> so that was the extent of our conversation. Um, there, and I ended up stumbling upon a study that uh, Michigan State University did about publicly operated co-working spaces. And it gave me a little renewed sense of faith um, that it could work uh, after my, um, my spirit was crushed by he who will remain unnamed. Um, and then yes, consider your capacity as staff. If you have you know, an assistant or if you don't have the budget for that, consider other methods of bringing someone on board. If you're not familiar with the Mayor Corvista program, it is, um, it is a great opportunity to get a full-time person. Uh, our uh, financial obligation was only $6,000 and um, we had a full-time staff person for a year. So consider resources like that if you need to. Um, and just like our transformation strategies that we love so much at the National Main Street Center, just remember that every place has its unique needs. And so like, you know, who, who knew that my co-working space was going to be a stuffy office environment where most people had private offices and we don't have, uh, you know, parties all the time and, and hang out and collaborate and all that fun stuff, but it's serving a purpose and it is, uh, the demand is there and it's making money and it, it still shocks me to this day, but it is working and, and it's magical. So um, it, it has to be custom created for whatever your community's needs are. So um, here's my contact information. I will stop sharing so that we can um, 
have a little bit more dialogue. <clears throat> well, we've had, uh, let's see, um, let me put this back in the right view here. There we go. So a couple more questions have popped up and somebody actually asked about the uh, support of the, of the municipality. And it was actually, um, we've had lots of folks join the group over the last couple of days. And we've had actually, I think some interest, there's a couple of folks who work or and or are representing uh, co-working spaces who are kind of in the comment section, which has been great because they've been able to offer feedback as well. But one of the questions from one of those groups was about municipal support. And I don't think that there's a fundamental understanding of what a downtown development authority is. And can you explain kind of a little bit of, of your organization and then the funding behind that? Yeah, so in the state of Michigan, I know Georgia still has DDAs. There's a few others um, that are still alive and kicking. Um, essentially, it's uh, we are funded, we are a tax funded organization. And essentially, we're supposed to be separate from our municipality, but we're kind of act as a department of. Um, and so the, the funding mechanism is tax increment financing, which is a state law um, that is essentially, I mean, I think most people are familiar with TIF, but um, basically what it is, is, you know, establishing a, a baseline of the property values in your district. And then each year, as those values go up, you get to skim off the top as far as that, that property tax income. And that goes into a special fund that has to be spent to uh, improve. And really the ultimate purpose is to, uh, re to prevent property value deterioration. That's the whole reason why DDAs exist. Um, and so you, um, every DDA has a different plan and different things that are okay to fund. Um, we did use uh, some of our, I mean, we don't, we're not solely funded by tax dollars. We have a lot of other sources of revenue too, um, but because we own property, for example, so we collect a, a good amount of rent from some of our downtown tenants. Um, but yeah, we, we put our money into this and technically speaking, you know, we're kind of sort of part of the municipality city council had to approve that budget. And so, um, and knowing that we were going to be making money off of it made everyone uh, feel a lot better about it. And so the whole break even goal, um, you know, it kind of made me sweat a little bit at first. Uh, and, you know, you did have some property owners downtown say, well, do I get a free membership since I pay extra? And, <laughs> right. Like, you know. How do, how do you handle that though? I mean, what's, I mean, when somebody, yeah, I'm, you know, my pack, my tax dollars are paying your salary and it's paying for this. How come I have to pay more on top of that? How, how did you handle that? Um, I, you know, I just kind of, I'm, I'm a good listener, right? Um, that's another art of the job. Um, and, and you have to figure out, you know, what the, the underlying issue is, uh, you know, whether the person thinks they pay too much taxes or if they have vacant property that they think those people should be occupying. Um, and just said, you know, there was actually one person that came up to me and said, you know, this is crap. I wanted to open my own co-working space, but I was going to do it out, you know, in the township in like a strip mall. Like, let's talk about how that would have went. Um, and I and 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 my um, I and and a couple they of my board thank members, you by the way because you just saved them a ton of money because they would have lost their shirt by putting it on a strip mall on the edge. Of I town. know. Um, but my board members and I basically said, if you want to do this, then you can do this. Like, we will more than we're more than happy to just hand this over and and you can run this business. And they were like, well, that means we'd have to hire someone. And like, they, they started backpedaling. Like, 
And so um, we basically just, you know, anyone that has an issue, we try really hard to um, kind of bring them to the table to be a partner in some capacity um, and or just thank them for their feedback. So. <laughs> So, you know, you, you've, you've alluded to this, but I want to make, I just want to confirm that it's now self-sufficient, essentially, from a financial standpoint. I mean, yep. it still needs some staffing, but I mean, the chamber's not going to take over something that's going to be a, be a dog of a project that, you know, this is something that's actually going to generate revenue. Yeah. And I got to tell you that kind of, I'm a, I'm a recovering chamber president, but, you know, I, I see a program that makes money and I think, why are you giving that up? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I yeah, that's neither here nor there. Um, the one another question that somebody had asked earlier that I want to make sure I, I brought up was whether or not the space is ADA compliant and whether or not you guys had to address that as you you know were looking at the space. Thankfully, it is. There's an elevator that comes down into the space. You know, all the doors are the door openings are wide enough. We even have ADA bathrooms, and so we got really lucky with that. <clears throat> but yeah, that can be a significant upfront investment if. A space so if you had it to do over again, what would you do different? Oh, that's a good question. Actually, nothing. Like, you know, there were some hairy moments. Um, for example, when we put the random call out to the community for um, art to put on the walls, you will not believe the amount of one response that we got, but also two, like, kind of crazy that came off the street as a result of that. Um, you know, I feel like there were a couple of weeks where our, our AmeriCorps VISTA member was just dealing with artists um, because they would just come into the space unannounced, like hands full of a bunch of stuff and demand that they like, you know, get their own wall so they can hang everything the way they want to. And um, we had a person that essentially emptied out their storage unit of, you know, old art that they had. And we were taking it all because there's a lot of wall space to cover. But like that in and of itself became a job for a couple of weeks. And we were like, how do we rein this in? Like, this is great. Like, we're really excited. But it was also becoming like, we're not an art gallery. Like people would come down just to see art at first. So yeah, I mean, but it was great. It was fantastic. I don't have any regrets or things that we would do differently. <laughs> so what's the, you know, what's the biggest pitfall, you know, out of all the stuff that you're dealing with, what's the biggest pitfall you'd tell people that, you know, be, be sure to mind this, what would that be? Um, you know, it's funny because for example, there is a co-working space that is nonprofit operated, but essentially a downtown organization operates it very close to us in Harbor Springs called The Loft. And um, they are located up on a second, like they're basically the opposite of everything that we did. It's up on a second floor. It's not ADA accessible. Um, because it's a nonprofit, they really had no upfront funding to kind of kick it off. And so the, I mean, really bare bones operation, but it's in a beautiful historic building, windows from floor to ceiling, and they have the communal setup and it works for them. Um, and because in the beginning, we were so convinced that we had to make our space cool and hip and interesting, I think we overinvested in things like 
ball chairs and um, like random like amenities that we thought people wanted to like make them feel more healthy and uh, I don't know, like a healthier workplace. And um, unfortunately things like that, like no one's looking for that. Like they were just like, that's cool, but I'm good. So yeah, I don't know. Oh, I guess yeah, just way, don't... we overinvested in ball chairs. I think that's the quote <laughs> so far. That's, that's pretty good. It was um, grant funded though. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of, a couple other folks have uh, chimed in. Um, one is, uh, what other services would, if you could wave a magic wand, what other services would you, you know, add? You know, somebody has said, you know, uh, photog if photography and podcast spaces are in demand, you know, would you look at a space for, you know, pop, not necessarily a pop-up photo studio, but something where local photographers could essentially rent out a photo studio or a podcast booth or stuff like that you know what would you if you had to you know kind of add some bells and whistles or maybe even what's next you know what mm -hmm. would you know what would that look like or what would you pick yeah we so we actually have a, a, a very big what used to be a storage room and it's it's very industrial so it could look cool <laughs> with the right lighting um that we were working on creating like transitioning it into kind of a maker space or that like flex space that can be used for whatever a person might need. Um, we also have a very prominent local um, art center and they started to get a little nervous about that when we were talking about art maker space. And so, yeah, I would definitely kind of lean toward more, lean more toward um, you know, the photography. We have a lot of photographers in town and I think that would be a huge value um, our phone booths could be great for um, the pod, the podcast stuff. Um, so it's it's a matter of you know being able to find funding for a lot of the equipment that's needed that people can't afford on their own. And I and I do envision it being a place where you know anyone of any level of income can come in and essentially elevate themselves, whether through a hobby or you know a new thing that they're trying to do and make into a career. Um, there, there's definitely a lot of opportunity in that realm. And so I have a, I have a feeling the chamber is going to be great when it comes to, um, moving that part of it forward. So what's your current membership levels in terms of like, what's the, what's, you know, if I'm one person off the street and I want to come in and co-work, you know, what's, how does that work? Explain that. So we have, structure, I guess. yeah, right now, um, we actually have only weekly or monthly options. Um, and we, but we also have a punch pass. And so um, if you purchase a punch pass and you can kind of come and go as you please whenever you need to, whether just, you know, instead of just stay, sitting there for an entire week, if you don't have work to do, for example, um, and that's $12 a day. And so um, it's pretty affordable. And, and we've actually, like sometimes when the library has been closed, we've had people who had planned to go there to use the internet, say to look for jobs. And they've come to us and said, hey, like they're closed today because they're having a meeting. Can we pop in? And we just let them like that's it's fine. It's a community space. <laughs> We're not going to shoo anyone away. So that's cool. Well, and then let's see, there was one more question. Let me find it real quick. Um, Oh, yes. I want to end on a fun question, which is, of course, courtesy of Ms. Gosling in Grayling, Michigan, uh, who wanted to know, did you have any weird or creepy art that you had to display in a closet versus out in the open? 
And I'm curious, did Ray I, donate anything? That's the other question. Well, I'm like, I'm thinking, wait, did I tell Ray this story? Because Ray and I talk every day. Like, thank she is you, heckled, Ray, by the way. I will let you go back and read the comments and the heckling. I'm not passing along the heck. Because <laughs> um, she was I talking about side part it. versus middle part and making yes. fun of every good. That's Ray, you know, it, but yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to justify any of Ray's heckling. She doesn't need any more. But the question was, was there any weird or creepy art that ended up having to find its way in a closet? That's it's a setup. Actually, totally it's, <laughs> we did have an issue um, and it's not in a closet. It's still on display because we are an equal opportunity space. Um, there, there are a couple of paintings that are very religious in the sense that like there's a scene of heaven and like angels and horses and it's like massive um and very obvious that it's christian based which is fine um but because we're a government entity we didn't want to you know come off as supporting or not supporting and so uh, when that artist came in, and there's another one that's, um, it, it's very vivid and kind of strange, like I feel like interpretations of Bible stories. Um, when that artist came in, they wanted to put their pieces on the back wall of our conference room, which is kind of the first thing you see when you come into the space. And we gently had to divert her to another wall that was a little less noticed so that it was just kind of a fun thing to find versus like in your face. This right. is we're we're about this year kind of thing. So that was fun. That's awesome, Ray. Or is that, you know, Ray, you can always count on to offer something entertaining uh, to the conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Lindsay, thank you so much. Uh, this was a great presentation. I think our folks. Uh, Got a lot out of it. I see uh, one of, uh, and I'm not sure if you were here during the time of uh, of Kelly Larson, who is a former uh, Main Street manager up in Boyne City. Uh, Kelly now owns property in uh, in Kansas, and uh, she's been exploring the idea. So make sure you go back through after this and read some of the comments, respond to those comments. And again, thank you to the folks who uh, also uh, are involved in co working, who have been talking, who have been providing uh, information and comments in the section as well. Um, this has been awesome. Thank you, Lindsay, so much. And uh, folks coming up next is going to be Jeff Siegler at three o'clock to talk about uh, stories from the road. Some of so a couple of really great stories from Pennsylvania and South Carolina, I believe, um, you know, from his time with uh, heart and community heart and soul. And then at four o'clock, I'm back talking with uh, Dorian Moore from Archive DS about developing developers. So with that, we're going to let you guys get a couple minutes to go hit the bathroom or whatever before Jeff starts up. But again, Lindsay Dotson, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. I'm going to go grab my beer now. Bye. <laughs> See you.